Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Matthew chapter 10. I want to welcome everyone here in our sanctuary, those that are worshiping in our Family Life Center, and we know we have a a big part of our church worshiping at home today. Uh, So to all three campuses or to all three worship services, welcome to our worship today. In recent weeks, we've been going through a message series. Uh, We've titled it Rebuttal Answers, True Answers to Hard Questions. And we've tried to deal with some of the most difficult questions that we could that we could think of. We started with the existence of God. Does God really exist and how can we know? And then we talked about suffering. If God is real, if God is powerful and loving, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Why doesn't God just put a stop to the suffering? And then, and then we talked about creation. How was the world created? And then how was life created? And today we come to one more question and this is an emotional one. This is a difficult one to preach, but here it is. How could a good God send someone to an eternal hell? Have you ever wondered that? Have you had people ask that question? How could a good, loving, kind God send someone to an eternal hell? And I want to try to answer that question today from God's Word. And we're going to begin in Matthew 10 in just a moment. We're going to begin with what I believe is is perhaps the most the most difficult verse in the Bible to read and to to listen to. This is a shocking verse. And I want you to get the full effect. So so let's be reminded, we're reading the words of Jesus. If you have a red letter Bible, this verse will be in red. I'll tell you the verse in a moment. Uh, This is from Jesus, the, the John 3, 16 Jesus. For God so loved the world, Jesus. This is the God is love, Jesus. This is from the meek and mild, Jesus. This is from the shepherd who risks everything to save the one lamb, Jesus. This is the Jesus who said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. This is that Jesus. This is the Jesus that showed compassion to the woman caught in adultery. So what does he say here in Matthew chapter 10? Look at verse 28. This Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That, my friends, is a, is a shocking verse. It seems over the top. Don't fear people because all they can do is kill you. But fear the Lord because he can send you to hell. How could that be true? How could a good and a loving God say something like that? Christians talk about the grace of God. We talk about the mercy and the loving kindness of God. So really, is it true that there could be no hope, no escape, no relief for somebody who just misses the mark somehow? How can we believe something so primitive, something so unfair, and something that seems so cruel? Church, that's a legitimate question. And we need to be able to, to answer it and to answer it well. And, and, and so let's, let's begin with this fact, though. Ever since the beginning, our adversary, the devil, has been trying to bring confusion about this very question. What was the very first lie of Satan recorded in the Bible? The very first lie is when he addressed Eve and he said, you will not be judged by God for this sin. And so in the very beginning, 
Satan was saying that the judgment of God is not real, and he has persisted in that sin. And I believe that's why so many people refuse to believe this today. Uh, it's a legitimate question. And really, it's a question that should bother us some. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll talk to somebody who, who really just seems excited about hell. I, I know some pastor friends that they just can't wait but preach on hell. And certainly, we need to preach on hell, and we will preach on hell. But if we're not bothered by this, if this question doesn't make us stop and think for a moment, then something's wrong with us, right? Either we're ignorant of what hell really is, or we're just so hard-hearted uh, that we don't really love and care for the people around us. Uh, this, is, this is a hard question. Jesus was bothered by this question. Jesus himself, I'm going to show you those verses as we get a little further in the message. Uh, the apostle Paul was bothered by this. I'll, I'll read this verse to you now. Romans 9, 2 and 3. Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He's thinking about people that he loves and cares for. Those people going to hell. And he says, I just have this great sorrow, this unceasing anguish. He says, for, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers. He said, this is so terrible, it upsets me so much, I wish I could change places with people. I cannot bear to think that they might go to hell. So what are the questions? Why, why are people so bothered by the doctrine, the biblical teaching of hell? I, I think there are a few reasons. So, sometimes it's just because the obvious, it seems so harsh for a loving God, the loving kindness of God, for God to do something, to send somebody somewhere that is so awful, it just seems overly harsh. Another problem people have, and I've heard this question more and more in, in recent days, how could, a, how could God give us an eternal punishment for a temporal sin? You know, if our sin just lasts a little while, a year or 10 years or 100 years, how could God punish us forever and ever and ever just for a temporary sin? That's a good question. And then some people will suggest it just seems unfair. Because we're not talking about Nero or Hitler or Pol Pot or Joseph Stalin or Osama bin Laden. We're talking about normal people living normal lives. We're talking about husbands and wives and moms and teachers and firemen and, and preachers. We're, we're talking about regular people. This just seems like an ugly and an embarrassing concept that someone could just miss the mark and end up spending eternity in hell with, with no hope. So that's what, that's what we want to address this morning. Let's, let's begin with just a, a short primer on hell. Now we could spend uh, a whole message series just talking about the details of hell, and we won't do that, but let me just take about five or six minutes and, and, and tell you what the Bible says just in general about hell, and, and then we'll answer these, these objections that people raise. So the first question people might have, what does the Bible say, who I should say, who does the Bible say will end up in hell? Do you know the answer to that question? I think the simplest place to go would be to John 3, 16, because everybody knows that verse. Everybody's heard that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, his one and only, his only begotten son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. See, Jesus said that if you, if you trust him, if you believe in him, then, then you have heaven in your future. You have eternal life in your future. But if you do not believe in him, if you don't trust him, 
then you don't have eternal life in your future. You have eternal death in your future. If you go down just a, just a couple of verses from John three sixteen, listen to what Jesus followed up with. He says, anyone who believes in him is not condemned. If you believe in Jesus, you trust in Jesus, you surrender your life to Jesus. If anyone believes in him, he is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son who will end up in hell. All of those who have not put their full trust in Jesus for their life, for their death, for their sins. Those who haven't put their true, full trust in Jesus. Now, that brings us to the next question. How many people will end up in hell? And I think you've got to follow the first question with the second question because sometimes people so soften what it means to believe in Jesus or to trust in Jesus they end, that they end up saying everybody's going to heaven. So how many people exactly, Pastor? How many people are going to heaven? Well, so many places in the Bible that we could, we could look to and they all say the same thing. But let me draw your attention to something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He says, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few people find it. Jesus said, the pathway that leads to hell is the pathway that most people are going down. And the pathway that leads to eternal life is a narrow pathway. Fewer people are going down that path. And so when we try to understand what it means to really believe in Jesus, we have to understand it's not something that everybody has done. In fact, few people, few people, so far as you compare it to the whole population, few people have done this. Jesus it gives a parable in Matthew 13. We call it the parable of the wheat and the tares. And, and just to make a, a long story short, he, he says that uh, in your, in, on your farm, you, you could have the wheat growing up with the weeds and you not be able to tell the difference until harvest time. And, and what he's saying is that, that sometimes it's, it's difficult for us to tell the difference between a Christian, someone who's put his trust in the Lord, and someone who is not a Christian until the harvest time. When we, we look around, we're not very good at picking out the wheat from the tares. And so how many people will, will go to heaven? How many people will go to hell? The Bible says that this is something that should really give us pause because many people, you, 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 in fact, you could look at this and say most people, are going to miss heaven and, and go to hell. Hell is not reserved for some super select group of evil people. But hell is the place for those who die unprepared. Hell is the place for those who die without putting their trust, their faith in Christ. Now, the next question, the last question that we'll ask before we get into these, to these uh, objections, what is hell like? What is it really like? Well, the Bible has much to say about this. The apostle Paul writes about hell. Uh, John has much to say about hell in the gospel and in his, uh, his epistles. Jude writes about hell. Jesus talks about hell. He talks about hell, I guess, as much as, much as any other subject that he talks about, the Bible has much to say about hell. Now, sometimes, and, and as long as I've been a pastor, it seems that... Uh, you know, once a year or so, somebody will bring this objection to me because they've read it on the internet. I'll just give you a, a clue to start with. Just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true, right? So somebody will come and say, Pastor, I read, there was an expert that said that in the, 
in the Greek, in the original language of the New Testament, that there are a bunch of different words all translated hell in our English Bibles. And those same words, some of them, are also translated to mean a bunch of different things in the Bible. And, And so there's no clear way, honestly, to read the New Testament and say that it speaks of hell. The words are just too confused. But, but listen, when, when they translated your English Bible, they didn't have some agenda. Those weren't ignorant men and women. They knew what they were doing, and it's accurate. Even in our English language, we sometimes will have a word that'll have a bunch of different meanings. And sometimes we'll have a bunch of different words that'll have the same meaning. And sometimes those are the same words. Let me, let me give you an example. The word death. If somebody dies, what are the different words we could use to say that they died? Well, we could use the word death. We could use the word died. We could say they passed away. We could say they kicked the bucket. We could say they bought the farm. We could say they went home, expired, perished, croaked. I mean, we come up with a whole list of words. And they all, even though they're very different words, we understand that they all mean the same thing. But then we could take the word death and we could notice that it can mean other things. You could talk about somebody being scared to death. You could talk about a football team getting the death penalty. You you occasionally hear somebody say, I feel like death warmed over. And so there are many words for death and then death sometimes can mean many things. But does that mean that we're confused all the time? No, we're never confused about that because the context makes it crystal clear. When I hear the word death, I know whether they're talking about a person who is deceased or they're talking about a dessert, death by chocolate. I don't wonder. I wonder if they're talking about this or that. No, we know. It's clear. And in the Greek New Testament, there is no confusion about this. It is clear. The context makes it clear. It appears so many times in so many different ways. Don't get confused about what you read on the internet. So with, with that in mind, let's, let's answer the question, what is hell like? And I'll give you this description. First of all, hell is a place of awareness and regret. Sometimes people will suggest that maybe, maybe if you die and, you, and you're not going to receive eternal life, maybe if you're not going to go and be with the Lord in heaven, that, that maybe you just go to sleep and sleep forever, or maybe you'll just be annihilated and you just no longer exist. But that is not the testimony of Scripture. In fact, in Luke chapter 16, there is a parable. begins in verse 23. You can read it when you get home. It really tells us many of the details of hell. I'll read you the first verse. He says, And being in torment in Hades, he looked up, this, this man, this, this rich man who had ended up in hell, he's in hell or Hades here. He looked up and he saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. When he was in hell... He was aware that he was in hell, and he was aware of where he was not, right? So there's awareness. You're you're not annihilated. You're not asleep. You're aware. You're aware of where you are, and you are aware of where you're not, if, if that makes sense. So hell is a place of awareness and regret. Secondly, hell is a place of physical and emotional torment. Let me read the very next verse in that parable. It says, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Hell is a place of agony, continual agony, physical agony, emotional agony. 
So what causes the agony in, in hell? Well, the Bible says, among other things, that fire causes that emotion. So, so the idea of hell and fire, this doesn't, didn't come from Dante. This didn't come from some kid's book. This comes straight from the Bible. The Bible says there's fire in hell and it causes agony, physical agony. Oftentimes people ask me, Pastor, is it a real fire? Well, so far as I understand, it's a real fire. And it can't be just like the fire in our fireplace because you don't burn up and it never ends. But it's a real fire that causes real physical torment forever. There are the flames of, of hell. Matthew 25, 41 says, He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the torment is both physical and emotional. Uh, the Bible in one place says it's talking about hell refers to the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Now that's not so much a, a physical uh, response, although there is physical torment, but that's an emotional response. There's weeping, there's gnashing of teeth, there's anger in hell forever and ever. Daniel 12, 2 talks about the shame and the everlasting contempt of hell. You, you'll be filled with shame for eternity and contempt and hatred. And hell is a place where, where there is no comfort. Luke 16, 25 says, but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. The one in hell asks for relief from Abraham. Abraham says, no, there's no relief. So hell's a place of physical and emotional torment. Uh, number three here under our description of hell, hell is a place of complete isolation. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not looking forward to going to hell, but at least all my friends will be there. Well, all your friends may be there, but you won't know it and you won't care. The Bible says in Matthew 8, 12, that in hell you are thrown into outer darkness. You are alone. There's no fellowship. There's no party. There's no camaraderie. You're alone, alone in hell. And then that brings us to the last description here. I want to mention hell is a, a place of hopelessness. Luke 16, 26, this is still in that parable. Luke chapter 16, the next verse. Besides all of this, a great chasm has been fixed, fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot and neither can those from there cross over to us. What we see in the Bible over and over and over very plainly is that hell is forever. It, it, it's, this is not purgatory. You will not find that anywhere in your Bible or even hinted at in your Bible. This is, there's no option out. There's no, uh, you, know, you know, getting out for, for, you know, time well served or good behavior. No, it is forever. It is forever. And there can never be a change once we, once we find ourselves in hell. The Bible makes it clear that hell lasts as long as heaven so just let that sink in a moment. How long does hell last? Well, how long does heaven last? We don't have any problem believing that heaven lasts forever. And so the Bible matches those up. If heaven lasts forever, then, then hell lasts forever. So that's, that's the hell we're talking about. Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body, but fear the one who can throw you into hell for eternity. A hot, tormenting hell, lonely, hopeless hell. So now let's look at those concerns we raised a moment ago. Does that, that seem like something a, a kind, loving God can do? Does that seem, seem right that it could be uh, eternal punishment for temporal sin? Uh, does that seem fair? That's the question. That's how people ask it. Is that fair? So those are good questions. Let's, let's start with the first one. Does God send people to hell? 
Now, you see the answer up there is no with an asterisk by it. And I, was, I just want to draw your attention to this asterisk. Please don't go away from here and say that pastor doesn't believe God sends people to hell. Uh, I don't believe that. But, but with an asterisk, let me, let me show you what I mean. Does God send people to hell? No. Because hell is not an assignment, it's a consequence. Do you understand the difference? If I, am, if I encounter a man who's starving to death, and he's, he's very, very clearly on the, on the verge of death, and I offer him some food, some food that would save his life, and he refuses to eat the food and he dies, now did I cause his death? Did I assign his death? Did I make his death happen? No, his death is a consequence of his refusal. I don't bear the responsibility for his death. I offered him some food. He bears the responsibility for his own death. It's a consequence of his choice. So does God send people to hell? No, hell is the consequence of their choice, their choices in life. The Bible makes very clear that God doesn't want God doesn't desire that any person would go to hell. Uh, let me read a few verses that remind us of that. And in my original outline, if you want to go online, I've, I have even more verses than this. But 2 Peter 3, 9, and I'm going to shorten this verse a little bit just so you get the, get the picture here. It says, the Lord does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And just... Just think about that. God doesn't want any person, any person to perish. Mark 9, 36 says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus looked out over the crowds and knew that, that many or most of those people were on the pathway to hell, it broke his heart. He was sick, physically sick, because they were going to hell. We, we talked a moment ago about, uh, about what, what should our attitude be about this. And if you're just really excited about hell, then you have a very different attitude than Jesus. We see Jesus' attitude here, and we see his heart. He didn't desire that anybody go to hell. Luke chapter 19, verse 41, just a simple verse. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it. When Jesus would would look out and, and when Jesus knew people were going to hell, it broke his heart. Jesus, the Lord, does not desire that any person would go to hell. And so he gives us a real choice. I think of uh, the encounter that Jesus had with the rich young ruler. It's recorded in Luke chapter 18. A man comes to Jesus with a desire to be a Christian. We would say in our in our language today, he desires to be a follower of Christ. And so he asks Christ, how can I be a follower? How can I be a child of God? And so there's a conversation and Jesus tells him, you're going to have to completely surrender to me. You're going to have to make me number one in your life. And the man decided it wasn't worth it. Something else was number one in his life. And so he walks away sad. And he goes down the path that leads to hell. And Jesus let him. Jesus didn't run after him. Jesus didn't say, well, then let's renegotiate this. Because when it comes right down to it, Jesus will honor our decision. He presents us with the opportunity. He makes possible the opportunity that we can be children of God, eternal life. 
But hell is the consequence of our choice. So does God send people to hell? Here's the asterisk. Uh, certainly hell is real and people go to hell, but they go as a consequence. Uh, God does not send them there in his anger and his hate. God gives them a choice. And more than that, God purchases the ticket to heaven, right? By sending his son. Romans 5, 8 says, God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Does God send people to hell? No, people send themselves to hell because it's the consequence of their choice. Now the, the next question, do people receive eternal punishment for temporal sin? You know, even if a person murders somebody here in America, there's, there's a pretty good chance that after a few years in jail, they'll get out, right? We're always uh, uh, letting people out. We're always saying that the punishment you should receive for your crime is, is shortened. Or if you'll, if you'll just be nice, if you'll be on your best behavior, we'll shorten that. And so we don't require eternal punishment for temporary sins. So how could God require an eternal, a forever, a, a, a hopeless punishment just for, just for temporal sins, just for sins that, I mean, at the most, they're only going to last 100 years, right? For, for these sins in our, in our very short lifetimes compared to eternity, how could we sin now we miss the mark somehow, and then God punish us forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Doesn't seem fair. So does, do people receive eternal punishment for temporal sin? No. But listen, with an asterisk. With an asterisk. Hell is eternal. But our sin is eternal. God doesn't give us eternal punishment for temporary sins. He gives eternal punishment for eternal sins. The Bible says that when a person goes to hell, that they don't all of a sudden uh, repent. That they don't get to hell and say, oh, I shouldn't, I should have, I, I, I wish I had another chance at this. That they don't all of a sudden say, I love Jesus. No, the Bible talks about an eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. That means they continue to rebel in their hearts. It's not an eternal punishment for a temporal sin. It's eternal punishment for eternal sin. Sin goes on. Hell goes on. And that leads us to the last question, is God fair? Is God fair? And the answer is no, again with an asterisk. Uh, is God fair? Well, in one sense, no, he's not. And in another sense, yes, yes, he is. It really depends on whose definition of fair uh, you want to look to. If by fair, you mean that God ultimately will ignore your sin. If what you mean by fair is that, that eventually, in the end, at some point, God is just going to turn his back and pretend like you didn't sin in the ways that you did. If that's fair, God is not fair. The Bible says that God will judge every sin. You see this in Romans 3 and Romans 5. You see this in 1 Corinthians 6. You see this in Deuteronomy 6. Over and over and over, the Bible talks about the justice of God. God will never ignore a sin. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You can turn to Galatians. He has about half of the things that are listed there on his list in Galatians, but he provides some additional ones. And he says there, there are sins and sins will be judged. Romans 6, 23, the wages, the result, the consequence of sin is death. 
Zephaniah 3, 5, the Old Testament says that God never fails to exercise perfect justice. If we mean by fair that eventually God's just going to pretend like we haven't sinned, then God is not fair. But if we mean by fair that God in the end will be just, that every sin will be paid for, either by the person that committed the sin or by Jesus who has stood to take their punishment for them, but every sin will be paid for. God is the good judge. He is the perfect judge. If we had a judge here in town that that would have a criminal brought before him, a, a guilty criminal, and the judge would say, well, I like you, don't worry about it, go home, we would get rid of that judge because he's not a good judge. God is a good judge. He, he is perfectly just. Every sin will be paid for, either by the one who committed it or by Jesus himself. So if you mean by fair that God is just, then God is fair. Job 37, 23 says, the Almighty will not violate justice. But I think what people are really saying when they say, uh, if hell is real, then God is not fair. What they're really saying is that God, that God's fairness doesn't match their own fairness. So listen, church, this this may disturb some people, but listen, I think this is the right attitude. I am not going to be embarrassed by what God's word says. And if somebody thinks that they are nobler, kinder, more merciful, more graceful uh, than, than the Lord in the Bible, then they can think that, but I will not be embarrassed about what the Bible says. God does not need me to be his PR guy. Creation is not ultimately about me and you. God didn't create this world for us. God does not exist to make me and you happy and to meet our needs. The goal of all that God has made is that he would be glorified. In the end, that that he would be glorified, that he would be perfectly righteous, that he would be perfectly just, that he would show grace and mercy to those who trusted him. The goal of everything is not not that I'm taken care of, it's that God is glorified. So when people say, God's not being fair to me, what we're doing is we're making ourselves God. And we're making God our servant. God's not being fair to me like God's here for me. But but the truth is, no, I'm here for God. It's about me bringing my life, bringing glory to God. Not not God being fair to me by some some definition of fairness that I've I've come up with on my own. Listen, this is a longer passage, but but you'll, you'll catch it. Romans chapter 9, verse 21. Paul says, has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? Says, you know, the potter, when he's working with a clay, it's his clay. He's the potter. He can make whatever he wants. It's not about the clay. With the clay, you're not being fair to me because that other piece of clay was made into this and I've been made into that. No, it's not about the clay. It's It's about the potter. He goes on, and what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, Endured with much patience, objects of wrath prepared for destruction. And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? What it says is that God is God. And and God will do what he does according to his righteousness and his holiness and his justice. 
for, for his glory. It's not about our accommodation. It's about his glory. And so when people run up against this doctrine of hell and say, that's just not fair, they're, they're, they have confused who's, who's the chief. I mean, if it's all about us, then maybe it's not fair. But when we say it's not fair, we're putting ourselves above the Lord. It's about the righteousness of God, the holiness, the glory of God. You know, there's another way to look at it, and I'll share this in, in close. You know, I've heard people, you know, even in the, last, um, in the last few months, I, I've heard people who have read the Bible or parts of the Bible say of something that they have read, I would never have done that. They'll maybe turn to Genesis chapter 6 where, where there's a flood, God sends a flood kills every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth except for eight that are in a boat. Judges them for their sin. They, they, they drown and die. You know, we, we, we paint these Noah Ark scenes on the, on the walls of our kids' rooms, and we did that with, with our first child. But, I mean, you think about it, there's never been something more violent, more, uh, more devastating than, than the Noah's Ark flood. So people will say, well, I, I would never have done that. If I were God, I would not have done that. People look at the story of Job, where Job, a righteous man, lost his health, he lost his wealth, he lost his family. Uh, also that God could prove a point and be glorified. People will read that and say, Pastor, I, I wouldn't have done that. Or they'll turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, where the Bible says that in the end, God will take those that didn't put their trust in him. And he will throw them forever and ever and ever in the lake of fire. And people will say, if I were God, I wouldn't have done that. We need, though, to stop evaluating fairness by our own personal perspective and recognize it's about the justice of God. Because I'll tell you one more thing I wouldn't have done. I wouldn't have sent my son to bleed and die for a bunch of rebellious people, to give them an opportunity to be made right with me, not by living a perfect life, though I have demanded it, but by the, the shed blood of my son. I wouldn't have done that. Listen, we have a good and a righteous God. He is just, and there is hell, and many people will go to hell. But not because he is not just, and not because he is not loving, but because... He is just, and because he is loving. So when I think of Matthew chapter 10, we read verse 28, one of the most shocking verses I think in the Bible. Again, do not fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So that sounds pretty harsh, right? But let me read just a little further. The next verse. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than sparrows. We serve a God that because he is just, he will send those to hell for eternity who reject him. But we serve a God that because he is loving and merciful and filled with grace, and because he cares about us, has made a way through his son 
that we could be right with him. People say, God isn't fair. And you know, in a real sense, they are right. And that's the best news I've ever heard. Because if God were fair, I would have no hope of anything but hell. If God were fair because of my sin, it would be hopeless. If God were fair because of my rebellion, I could never be right with him. No, God's not fair. Aren't we thankful for that? If hell is real, then salvation is more urgent than ever. I'll tell you the scariest part of being a pastor. Can I tell you what that is? The scariest part is to think that there would be people who would hear me preach week in and week out all the time on the path that leads to hell. I, I think about that often. I pray about that often. It, uh, it's what motivates me. It's what pushes me. It's, it, it's, it's, it's what I mean, scares me in the best sense of the word. If hell is real, and it is, that ought to make our salvation so urgent. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you've not put your trust in him and him alone and done so in such a way that it has changed how you live, where you can point to the fruit, to the evidence of that in your life, this is the most important thing. If hell is real, salvation is more urgent. And if hell is real, it elevates the importance of sharing the gospel. Uh, now's the time. Most of the people you know, many of the people you know, are on the wide road, the pathway that leads to hell. What are we going to do to steer them in a different direction? Just so your head bowed and eyes closed. Father in heaven, there's some things that are just hard for us to understand. Hell seems so horrible, so terrible. I, I can't even fathom fire and torment and hopelessness and loneliness and physical and mental, emotional torture forever and ever and ever. I can't imagine that. I, can't, I just can't wrap my mind around that. But I know from reading your word that the reason I can't imagine that, I can't comprehend how horrible hell is, is really because I can't comprehend how bad sin is. My sin is that bad. It really is that bad. And from your holiness, you see that. Father, forgive me that, that I don't always see that, that sin just seems sometimes to me like it's so minor, it's so insignificant. Sin's serious, that's why there's hell. But your grace and your forgiveness are real, that's why there's heaven. I pray that not a person here today will rest his or her head on their pillow tonight without knowing for certain. Reaching out to one of our ministers or to a Christian friend and knowing for certain that they're on the narrow path that leads to eternal life. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In both services, let's stand.